1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 22nd of January.
3: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank
2: you for joining us. Now, Emily, every single week when I ask you how things are in Washington, you say that things aren't great. And I'm going to give you one opportunity to tell us some good things that have happened in yes. the last <laughs>
3: Yes. Things are actually fine in Washington. And I don't mean that in a kind of, we have a new president way. I, I just mean that I'm deeply relieved that the violence that I think many, including myself, anticipated during the inauguration did not come to pass, that the sort of militaristic structures in the city have been taken down, and that the inauguration... There was a debate as to whether we can count this as a peaceful transfer of power. I disagree with those who say that we can, because it was not peaceful. The capital was stormed and several people died. And so I, I don't know that we can say, well, the system worked, but it worked well enough that we were able to inaugurate a new president who on day one announced that we're rejoining the World Health Organization. And then Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's our nation's premier infectious disease expert, will be leading our, our delegation there. So it was all things considered a good week in Washington. How is Berlin.
2: Berlin is fine. We now have a new leader of the governing CDU, Merkel's party. Armin Laschet is the party's new leader. And we'll be talking a bit more about that later. But before we do so, what was your moment of the week?
3: I'm just going to say the inauguration. That was my moment of the week. And the thing that I will observe about it was that I was honestly shocked at how openly joyful other world leaders were. You know, the fact that President Moon Jae-in of South Korea put out a tweet saying America is back the fact that Norbert Rutgen of the of the Bundestag described it as a huge relief. We're so used to these various leaders and politicians being diplomatic about international relations that the kind of, oh, thank goodness, was uh, took me by surprise. That was also
2: written on Anthony Fauci's face. I don't know if you saw his appearance. I yeah. did. And
3: actually, it, not just his face, he, he said that it's liberating to know that he can come out and just say what the science is and not worry about the repercussions from his boss. So world leaders and Dr. Fauci's are... We're having a great time this week. That is, for once, some very good news out of Washington. Okay, so
2: my moment of the week is, unfortunately, a lot sadder. I think that historically significant in this week will be the news from Tuesday, the 19th of January, when the UN's refugee agency, the UNFCR, announced that it had got access to two refugee camps, finally, in the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray, where forces loyal to the central government are fighting with the regional ruling party. It was the first time they got access to these camps since the conflict broke out in November, and they found very grim scenes, as they describe it, people in desperate need. And I think there's been other there've been other announcements, including by incoming Secretary of State Antony Blinken, to the effect that the humanitarian situation in Ethiopia and particularly in Tigray and in neighbouring parts of Sudan and Eritrea is shaping up to be a calamity of our time. And I think we're going to. Hear more about that with good reason in the coming weeks. And so that is something that I think is going to be considered as historically significant and also something that I will be watching in the coming weeks. So, for our discussion this week, we wanted to explore the future of transatlantic relationships because. Our sense of this is pushing a bit in two ways. On the one hand, you've got a new Biden administration that is clearly a good thing for relations between the US and Europe. And on the other, you have various factors that might make us wonder how that relationship is going to pan out. The EU has just signed an investment agreement with China, explicitly against the wishes of the Biden team, Germany's Christian Democrats, the CDU, Angela Merkel's party. Last weekend, elected a new leader, Armin Laschet, who, although a moderate is known as being very dovish on Russia and China. Germany is about to complete a new gas pipeline to Russia that causes countries in Central and Eastern Europe some worries. Merkel's leaving, the UK is out of the EU, Macron and others are very keen on pushing an idea of, as they call it, strategic autonomy for Europe. And so I think it's a good time to ask some big questions about the future of the transatlantic relationship. And we're very fortunate to be joined for that conversation by Constanze Stelzenmüller, our guest this week. She is the inaugural Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and transatlantic relations at the Brookings Institution in Washington DC. She's held various significant think tank positions on transatlantic relationships and previously was an editor on Germany's Die Zeit newspaper. She's a great observer of the US, of Germany and of relations between both sides of the Atlantic. So we're very pleased to have her with us. Thank you for joining us, Constanza. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Before we get into that that broader discussion, I'd like to start with a a slightly narrower question. You wrote a a great article for the Financial Times last March in which you talked about the, as you put it, I believe the, the frat boys who were at that stage prevalent at Bonn University in the 1980s when you were also there. And Three of whom ended up vying for the CDU's leadership at the contest last weekend. Three male lawyers, Catholic, from North Rhine-Westphalia, the, the largest or the most populous state in Germany. And you you captured a bit of the, the kind of the political backdrop to that contest in that article. And I just wondered, could you first of all kind of tell us what you deduce from your time at Bonn University in the 1980s about the eventual winner, Armin Laschet?
4: All right. Well, thank you. I, I would I would say that the frat boys uh, was the title the FT put over it. I don't think I used that term in my piece, but amusingly, I don't think I've ever gotten any more backlash, and I think mostly from frat boys, in the comments section for any of the columns that I've written before or since for the FT, it clearly hit a nerve. But yes, it's it's the case that I went to the same law school at more or less the same time as the three contenders for the CDU leadership contest that happened last weekend and that Armin Laschet emerged out of, the other two being Norbert Röttgen the chairman of the Foreign Policy Committee in the German Federal Legislature and Friedrich Merz, a businessman. The point I was trying to make in that piece, and I think what really hit a nerve, is that the West German Republic before 1989, in other words, the Cold, Cold War West Germany, cannot be understood without its deep and broad informal male power networks. Power networks which are horizontal, which are very much regionally based, and some of them are religious. There's a sort of big network of Catholic fraternities, the CV. Armin Laschet went, went to one of those. They are also vertical, obviously. The German expression for this is Seilschaften, as in, you know, the rope that helps mountain climbers pull each other up the mountain. And that's a very common expression in the German language, used for the so-called Alterheim, the alumni of the fraternities, who then help the younger ones get plum jobs and and generally sort of help them when they when they need it in their in their careers. And you know, I don't want to suggest in any way that Laschet, or, for that matter, Merzel Rudkin didn't make their careers under their own steam. I'm I, you know, they're all three talented politicians, but. What's so characteristic about about this is that it gave a sense of you had to be in an in-group to understand how politics worked. And if you were like me, younger and female, then you were probably not going to be in one of those in-groups because they were men only. And how
2: do you see that environment, the Sealschaften and so forth, shaping Laschet today. He's a very clubbable character and he comes across very much as a product Indeed. of that rather the phrase used is that he's very gemütlich, he's very, he's very cozy. I think we both have areas where we might agree more with Laschet than others but do you see that gemütlichkeit becoming a problem for him, that coziness, that kind of clubbability?
4: I think that one of the things that's now coming under scrutiny is Laschet's insistence on his ability to balance out what he thinks is a passionate European identity, which I take very seriously. He considers himself to be a committed transatlanticist, but he also wants to balance out the relationship that Germany has with its closest allies against the relationship that it has with its greatest authoritarian challenger powers, namely Russia and China. This is the classic West German Cold War method of balancing what used to be called Westbindung, anchoring Germany in the West and Ostpolitik, making sure you didn't get on the wrong side of your adversary in the East. You could say that that worked when Germany was a divided country during the Cold War, and it worked sort of, but now that Germany's environment has darkened significantly, now that we've seen Russian security services commit Crimes. There was a there was a, an organ, a killing of a of a Chechen refugee in broad daylight in Berlin's um, Tiergarten Park last year. Now that we've seen Russia annex Crimea and conduct a proxy war to this day in Eastern Ukraine, we're seeing a very aggressive and assertive, dominance strategy by China, not just in its own neighbourhood, but in Europe and in Germany. You, one would think that this balancing strategy should come under question and, and that Armin Laschet would have adapted his talking points. But based on the last week's rather bemused reactions to international
3: scrutiny from his office, I think that's not been the case. To zoom out or maybe take another way into this discussion, in addition to a new head of the CDU, we have a new president here in the United States. And we've, we've spoken to some people on this podcast and in our reporting who have said that repairing relations with Europe is going to be a priority for the Biden administration. What I wanted to ask you was how important do you think it is? We have all these crises at home. How do you think the Biden administration will approach relations with, with Germany in particular and Europe more generally? Well, for one, I think Europeans
4: generally and the Germans in particular breathed a huge sigh of relief once Biden was sworn in on Wednesday, because of the just unflagging hostility the Trump administration and 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 President Trump in particular had against Europe and, above all, Germany. That was really, I think, quite exhausting, and I would include myself in that as a as a German living and working in Washington D.C. It's also clear that. The Biden administration comes in determined to make it clear to its allies that it values them, that it needs them. And indeed the panoply of policymakers that have already been announced as part of the team in the National Security Council, at the State Department and at the Pentagon includes a lot of really committed Europeanists. And, you know, it sort of comes with the territory of working in in dc for a time that you get to know some of these people because in between working in government they work in think tanks and i think i i can say with some conviction that some of the folks who are now entering the biden administration the, 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 some of them i've known for 20 years when i when i used to be a journalist at the site, as as jeremy mentioned who i think in an earlier day I think we're much more worried about European attempts to have a more, I won't say strategic autonomy because I dislike that term, but a greater self-reliance and bolster its own capacities of self-defense and power projection if necessary. And who I think in the past four years of the Trump administration have not just had to reflect greatly on America's role in the world, but have reassessed Their view of what Europe ought to be able to do for itself. And I think that we ought to thank our stars that the Biden administration comes with as many committed Europeanists as it does. That said, I want to follow that immediately with a caveat, which is this that this administration knows full well that its first order of business and probably its first through tenth is fixing problems at home. And then it's first order priority abroad is China. And European allies will have to prove that they are useful in this context. They will not get much attention if they don't make the case
2: that they are useful. On on that point, I mean, I was going to ask where you think the Biden administration would like to see European allies help with its Asia strategy. I was struck by a piece in the magazine Foreign Affairs by Kurt Campbell, who is taking over mm. as Biden's new Asia Tsar, as they put it, somewhat uh, ahistorically. <laughs> uh, he wrote this piece in which he said that one can draw comparisons between today's Asia, or at least the Biden administration's hopes for today's Asia, and the, the Congress of Vienna, or the sort of the 1815 settlement that balanced powers in Europe. And I suppose there, w- there was a hint in that, that he saw Europe as having some sort of lessons to impart on the US in kind of its great power shall we call it, a competition with China in the Asia-Pacific region. And, you know, in recent months, we've seen new Indo-Pacific strategies come out of Paris and Berlin and other capitals. What do you think in concrete terms the U.S. administration wants from Europe in in the Asia-Pacific region, apart from this kind of goodwill towards its own ambitions? Does the Biden administration want to see countries like France or Germany or indeed the EU as a whole kind of wade into its own power conflict there? Or does it just want a kind of a, a stable partner, kind of securing its back over the transatlantic vector? What do you think?
4: I think there's a couple of things here. The, the Trump administration had a China policy that while it was often incoherent and inconsistent with the president in particular, whipsawing between harsh criticism and trying to butter up of uh, Xi Jinping, China's leader, the Trump administration's China policy, I think, had some good aspects and some, some, made some very valid points, which the Biden administration is not about to throw out by the back door. I think, in particular, there is a growing consensus within Western democracies that China is pursuing a very aggressive global dominance strategy and not just in its own neighborhood, but but that Europe in particular is a significant element of this Chinese strategy as a source of technological innovation, as a market, as a source of investment, but also increasingly a place of investment. And we have learned and Europeans have become greatly concerned by the fact that China is very, very willing and able to act as a wedge, not just between the US and Europe, but also in Europe, by investing in more fragile European economies, buying ports, buying physical infrastructure, and of course, in its attempt to be the prime supplier for the European 5G network. And it's the Chinese ambassadors in Europe in particular have become well known for what's been been called wolf warrior diplomacy, very harsh, very public criticism in a in a way that that Chinese diplomacy used to issue. And that has already generated a fair amount of backlash. When the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi was in Berlin a couple months ago, his German counterpart Heike Maas actually criticized him for this publicly, which by German standards is very unusual. But But the Biden administration wants two things really. I think it wants backup, mostly political, diplomatic, perhaps economic for its policies in the Pacific region. It wants the Europeans not to fall prey to China in their own region and in their neighborhood. And I think it also looks at Europe's significant regulatory power and its trade power as an asset, an allied asset at a time when a lot of these conflicts are being carried out, not with military, not with kinetic means, but with means of weaponizing economic interdependence, using technology, using disinformation and generally the digital realm.
3: So I have a question on expectation versus reality for the US and Europe and, and China. I completely agree that I think the Biden administration will in some ways, maybe this is overstating things, but will in some ways look more like the Trump administration on China than it does the Obama administration, right? We're just in a different place now with US-China relations. Having said that, I was, you know, one of the things that people say is that under Biden, the U.S. will work with its partners and allies to counter China, whereas under Trump, the U.S. sort of tried to, to go it alone when it did indeed try to stand up to China or counter China or however you want to say it. But I was I was struck that late last month, there was a Reuters report that said that China and the EU aim for an investment pact by the year end. And Jake Sullivan, who is now the National Security Advisor, was then the incoming National Security Advisor, tweeted, the Biden-Harris administration would welcome early consultations with our European partners on our common concerns about China's economic practices. What do you make of that? Was it a, a gentle warning? Was it a, an invitation to do things differently? Other than the fact that we're still doing diplomacy by tweet? What are your thoughts on the, that exchange? The problem for the incoming Biden administration at the
4: time, when the German EU presidency was very much led by Angela Merkel herself, was pushing through this agreement, which only a few months before had seemed very unlikely to come to fruition, the Biden-Harris team was still a transition team, and they were playing by the rules, which is one president at a time. It is very refreshing, but but perhaps overly honorable, given the fact that the Trump administration is going to go down in history as having broken pretty much every rule in the rule book about diplomatic behavior. The Biden-Harris transition team was insisting on not being able to talk to European or other allied diplomats about issues of concern because it wasn't their turn yet. So I think this tweet by Jake Sullivan was a bit of an act of desperation, and it, of course, was immediately pounced upon by diplomats and think tankers alike, including me. I I think I retweeted it with the words, calling Berlin, calling Berlin, and then was sort of mildly amused, but also concerned to find both sides contacting me, basically asking, what should we do? Well, my advice was, well, my first thought was, if you're asking me, this must be even worse than I think. And my advice was to keep calm and carry on, essentially. This agreement has come in for a lot of invective, a lot of criticism. At this point, there's hardly anyone I know who hasn't written a think piece about it. And I myself, I'm honestly on both sides of the fence about it. I think that it doesn't at all preclude an urgently necessary European-American conversation about how to handle China's rise and and China's assertive behavior in the the world. But I find it unfortunate that the German-EU presidency and very much with the Chancellery in the lead should have found it necessary and useful to push this through at the very last minute. That said, the deal is only a preliminary deal it needs to be approved by the European Parliament where there's already a fairly large groundswell of opposition against it led by by the Green faction, notably by some of the German Greens there, people like Einhard Bütikofer, but it's also going to take at least until 2022 to to finalize the the ratification process, probably under the French presidency. So I think think this was a sort of shot across the bows, a warning sign, One that gave a tactical, symbolic victory to Beijing, certainly, and I think has highlighted just how complex the European and American conversation about China will be. But I think we knew
2: that before. Wherever you are in the world,
3: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to The New Statesman. On digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com/slash subscribe.
3: That's just two dollars a week in America.
2: I share your mixed feelings about it in the sense that on the one hand, I tend to think that Europe should stand with America and put up a common front against China particularly on the, on some of the subjects that were within that agreement. So, you know, things like workers' rights and human rights. And on the other hand, I found the tweet by Jake Sullivan a little bit. I understand entirely where he's coming from, but I felt it was a little bit naive because he was tweeting as if the Trump era hadn't happened. He was tweeting a bit as if to say, Biden's won, America's back to normal, you guys need to get back on board. And I do have some sympathy with those in, in this city, but where I am now in Berlin and in Paris and in Brussels and elsewhere, who say, well, we can't, sort of act as if the last four years didn't happen and we do have to hedge our bets mm-hmm. in some areas and we can't just you know freeze all of our big geopolitical positions waiting for a responsible administration to take office in in washington I, I don't really know whether i think it's more a good thing or a bad thing to be honest so i think we're we're aligned on that ambiguity as it were
4: well let me put it this way i think ironically this was something of an own goal for the EU Commission and, and the German presidency. And so it, if you will, puts the burden of proof on them to make it clear that they are not now in some way corralled in by, by Beijing in, in a way that, that precludes cooperation on larger strategic issues with the Biden administration. I think that European capitals are well aware that they need to stand up to Beijing and that with all Europe's economic and regulatory heft it is not going to be taken seriously by Beijing unless it stands shoulder to shoulder with America that doesn't preclude disagreements there are, there are going to be some quite distinct ones but but I think that in reality there is a lot of common ground the trump administration was suggesting, and particularly its economic advisors, were always suggesting that America and Europe needed to decouple from China, which is simply an unrealistic demand, not just for Europe, where that's obvious, but I think also for America. Americans would would never have the cheap consumer good that people order on Amazon every day during the pandemic if they weren't as economically interdependent with China as they are and a full decoupling would have had an enormous negative impact on the american consumer economy but i think the order of the day is to is to manage interdependence with china without allowing the chinese to weaponize it
3: we've spoken about what the new biden administration will mean for the transatlantic relationship so i feel we would be remiss if, if we did not ask. She said it was likely her last time chairing the CDU conference as Chancellor. So I guess we should say the very likely outgoing Chancellor Merkel, the fact that she will no longer be running Germany. What, what does that mean for the transatlantic relationship?
4: I think that depends on who wins the German elections, mm-hmm. the national elections on September 26. My feeling is that the political landscape is wide open. The German social democrats Merkel's increasingly reluctant three-time center-left coalition partner are clearly hoping for a center-left coalition with the Greens and with the Die Linke party, the successor to the East German Communist Party. And much of what the social democratic leadership is doing these days, I think has to be read in that context. I personally don't think that that is particularly realistic, but It is a a warning sign of how unhappy a lot of the social democratic base is, And I think it's also only fair to say that despite the fact that the green leadership is under Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock is setting itself up as the poster child for a center right coalition with the the Christian Democrats, uh, Angela Merkel's party. It's, I think, very clear that, that the Green base has much more mixed feelings about this. I think that if anybody attempted to set up a red-red-green coalition, as it's called, that would sort of tear the Green Party apart, but it's, but it's interesting that there is such a strong push for this. And in the CDU, in Angela Merkel's party, I think that the last weekend's leadership contest, which was, again, very close showed just how the CDU is struggling to define its identity as a modern conservative party after the departure of Angela Merkel. I suspect that the very high numbers that the CDU gets in the polls these days is mainly a Merkel bonus and that as soon as the German voter allows himself to realize or herself to realize that Merkel really is leaving, that those numbers will go down significantly. And then you will have possibly very complicated coalition mathematics on the day after the election, because I don't think there's going to be that clear of of an outlook for who runs Germany after her departure.
2: I agree on that. I think that that's true of Germany, in that Germany has not answered the question of what happens after Merkel. But it's also true about Europe, in the sense that a lot of political positioning by other players, whether it's Macron, or whether it's the Polish leadership, or whether it's Austria or Spain, rely on the idea that there's someone at the heart of Europe who really knows how to form compromises and to kind of create consensus. And Merkel, for all of her admitted flaws, is very good at that. And she has that kind of deep experience of of how to bridge divides within the EU and also beyond the EU. I mean this is also someone who speaks Russian and can understand Putin like practically no other major world leader can. I wonder more generally, and I think this brings us a bit back to the transatlantic relationship, is the world kind of ready for the idea that you're going to have a Europe where the preeminent leader will almost certainly be Emmanuel Macron and Europe could certainly have worse preeminent leaders than Emmanuel Macron, but he does come from a very French political tradition that tends to be more sceptical about Atlanticism and is obviously more comfortable with this idea of strategic autonomy. You know, is the transatlantic world ready for a a post merkel era, do you think?
4: I would prefer a Germany where we don't have chancellors running the country for four terms in succession. She is the second chancellor to do that. And I always get a little twitchy about political cultures that can't change leaders without sort of everybody having to go to therapy about it. Not just us Germans, but all of our friends and allies. I feel that we should just get over it and elect new leaders and then, and then get on with work. But it is, of course, a very, very complicated time that this leadership change is is happening in. We've seen a European recovery program that was forged out of probably the most significant European crisis, political, economic, health crisis in 30 years, perhaps in the entire post-war period. And I feel as though there is a lot of work that has yet to be done. And I am not sure that the leaders that we have on offer and our publics understand that. These are not ordinary times and ordinary leaders I think are not gonna cut it. So I look at somebody like Armin Laschet who's just been selected as the presumptive chancellor candidate and who still insists that we have to have good working relations with with Russia and China at a time when the Russians and the Chinese are actively interfering in European politics. And I think that, at the very least, the man has a very steep learning curve, or also there is obviously still the other possibility that he might not become the chancellor candidate. We haven't mentioned that yet, but I think that it's important for our listeners to know that there is still the not untheoretical option of another candidate coming in, perhaps after the first round of regional elections in Germany in, in the spring. And the one who is the front runner among those is the minister president of Bavaria, Markus Söder. There are good reasons for him not to do this, but but he is a candidate that keeps being named.
2: I mean, he does have quite close relations with awkward neighbours of Germany's like Hungary. I wonder how different he is to Lashard in that sense. Although I have to say, from watching him, I do think he's a more versatile politician. I think he could more easily mould himself into the status of a German Chancellor. Absolutely. The most important instance where
4: he did that, and the one that I think recommends him for higher office, was that in the course of the migration crisis that led to the the surge of the German far-right party, the, the alternative for Germany, Söder decided that it would be a good idea to mold himself as a, an afd light politician. In other words, he took on moderated versions of their positions, xenophobic, anti-immigration, hard rule of law positions, and then proceeded in the 2018 regional elections in his own state, Bavaria, to lose the crown jewel of Bavarian conservative politics, the absolute majority for his party, the CSU. And chastened by this unpleasant experience, he has now reinvented himself as a liberal conservative who cares about nature and about bees and things like that. To the great joy of the Green Party, who are hoping that he might be a much more amenable, much more congenial Chancellor candidate in a in a conservative Green coalition at the federal level, if that came to pass in the in in the fall of this year.
2: Yeah. I think there's something in that. I was there in Munich in 2018 to cover the elections, and remember I accompanied Mm -hmm. him in as his car pulled up at the Bavarian Parliament. And he came out with a face like thunder and had words to match. <laughs> this is a man whose political gambit hadn't worked out. But as you say, he has he has developed. And I think, you know, we can hold politicians to their words and actions of three or four or five years ago. But there is something to be said for, for someone who can actually change their views or change their approach according to what their voters seem to want. Now, that brings us to a question that we like to call, Emily.
3: You ask us. It does bring us in very nicely because our question this week, our listener question is on Lachette. So it's from Alex who asked, who would be Armin Lachette's preferred coalition partner were he to become chancellor, the Free Democratic Party, the Greens, or the Social Democratic Party? And then Jeremy and I are adding in a part of this question, which is how would those different permutations affect transatlantic relations? So again, for our listeners, we actually don't know that he will be the next chancellor, but if he is, who is his preferred coalition partner?
4: I think he hasn't really made that clear yet. Or at least he hasn't said anything about it publicly, but he is thought to prefer the Greens. Laschet was a part of the famous Pizza Connection. This is about a pizza restaurant back in Bonn before reunification when Bonn was still the capital of West Germany that young conservatives and young Greens used to meet in to discuss whether there might not be overlap between their political ideas. And this at a time when that was genuinely beyond the pale for the conservative leadership. And I think these connections turn into friendships and into working relationships. And and I think that does suggest that Armin Laschet's preferred coalition partner would be the Greens, who it has to be said, now a very, very different party from what they were in 1979 when they started out as a, a rigidly pacifist, ecological group of woolly, rugged, individualists, many of whom had come out of the anti-nuclear protest culture. It is now a very polished, very internationalist, very, very well-networked party with two leaders, Robert Habeck and Anna Lena Baerbock, who are darlings of the media and who have, I think both have good standing in Washington. Although Habeck did create some, a little bit of a kerfuffle here when he, when he criticized President Trump and was dressed down by the Trump White House for it. I think he didn't expect that. But otherwise, the Greens are, I think, a, an object of much fascination and hope in Washington.
2: On that point, I mean, how do you think a green black government or a black green government would be seen from Washington? Because on the one hand, as you say, Constanza, this is a party that grew up in an age of protests against missiles, against, particularly against the Pershing missiles that were placed in West Germany under Reagan. A party that kind of defined itself by being the kind of the conscience of West Germany in the face of a supposedly imperialistic U.S. And now they're standing a pretty good chance of ending up in the next government and playing a big role in it, whether it's under Laschet or whether it's under, who knows, you know, Zerda or whoever. How do you think that would play out in the U.S.? And how do you think that relationship would work out with a Green, let's assume, foreign minister, maybe a minister for the economy, big roles in berlin filled by Green Party politicians. How would that affect the relationship?
3: Well,
4: famously, the Greens have undergone a real maturation process in their foreign and security policy views. And they were pushed into that when they first came into government at the federal level in the middle of the Kosovo air war in 1998, where they had to countenance a um, support as members of the government, junior coalition partners of uh, the social democratic chancellor, Gerd yeah, Schroeder, NATO intervention against Serbia. That, I think, it has reinforced a split that was always there in the Green Party between the so-called fundamentalists, who were, were and remain rigidly anti-nuclear and pacifist, and the so-called Realo wing, which is in many ways the most forward-leaning of many of the German political parties. I think it's it's important for readers to understand that there are splits in all the major parties, including the conservative Christian Democrat, democratic parties about Germany's role between East and West. And the Royal wing of the Greens is very pro-Western, very Atlanticist, very Europeanist, and, and essentially, I think, wants more of the above. So the Europeanists and the Biden administration would be thrilled with this. But I think it's also important to understand that there is still a significant part of the Greens, and particularly of the Green base, that is entirely at odds with this and thinks that this is the way to petition. And I say this because I, I have current evidence for this, because I have been part of a German working group that has just published on Monday, a, a text on, called More Ambition Please in, in the English version, laying out ways in which Germany could be a better European and Atlantic ally. And this was convened by the Berlin Office of the German Marshall Fund and the Heinrich Böll Foundation, which is the foundation allied with the Green Party. And yesterday saw the outbreak of some, some really outraged criticism from the left wing of the Green Party against the paper itself and against the fact that the Bell Foundation was even a part of this, led by one of the most powerful leaders of the left wing, the member of the Bundestag, Jürgen Trittin. And in some ways, this is showcasing the disagreement about foreign security policy within the Green Party.
3: So American listeners who think that it's just squad V centrist Democrats, you are mistaken. This is happening all over the world and the the outcome will affect domestic politics and our transatlantic relations. Okay, before we let you go, as with all of our podcasts, we are going to close by each sharing what we are looking to in the week ahead. Constanza, you're our guest, so we'll let you go first. Well, I have to tell
4: you that after three Wednesdays this January in a row with events that shook the world and shook Washington after four years, which you would have thought had already done their part in shaking us all, namely the January 6th, the storming of the United States Capitol, the following Wednesday, the second impeachment of President Trump, and then the Wednesday after that, and this past week, the inauguration of President Biden, I frankly look forward to a week in which hopefully nothing at all except the calm pursuit of government and societal concerns
3: happens. I think that would be just lovely.
2: (laughs) Emily, what's your moment of the week?
3: Um, I will also be hoping for that, but I I will be looking ahead to seeing how the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate work out or don't their power sharing. So Democrats now have a majority. Mitch McConnell, who was Senate majority leader, is now Senate minority leader, is trying to get guarantees that they won't abolish the filibuster, a procedural rule that lets that basically lets a senator block legislation or discussion from going forward, but is also threatening to block all sorts of uh, democratic programs, raising the question of Democrats are, are damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Either you've eliminated this, this procedural rule, which not all of them support eliminating anyway, and have tension with the Republicans over that. And they'll say, well, we're not working with you because you got rid of the filibuster, or alternatively, you don't get rid of the filibuster. And then McConnell at all use that to hold up everything that you would accomplish. So I'll, I'll be looking at the next week of negotiations on that. Jeremy, what about what about you? What will you be watching?
2: I'll be looking ahead to the 10th anniversary of the Egyptian revolution. It was on January the 25th, so Monday next week, 2011, that thousands of Egyptians poured onto Tahrir Square in Cairo 10 years ago. It was an unprecedented turnout among anti-government protests in Egypt. Those who were there protested for bread, freedom and social justice. Mubarak resigned 18 days later, and yet, as we discussed with Lely Faroudi uh, only a few weeks ago, the Arab Spring has been in many ways a big disappointment, and that's certainly true in Egypt. The country saw a kind of brief resurgence of democracy, but it's been snuffed out, particularly since 2014, and the the takeover by Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who still runs the country now, The, the one country in the world that has more journalists in prison than any other but Turkey and China I understand and so a sad anniversary but an important one in the history of the Middle East and one to reflect on as we particularly mull what happens with US Middle East relations another subject that we want to come on to again soon so let's watch that and with that a big thanks to Constanze Stelzemuller of the Brookings Institution whose author page we will link to on the web
3: page for this episode thank you very much Constanza. it was a great pleasure thank you so much for having me on And if you, our listeners, have enjoyed this episode of the New Statesman's World Review, like, subscribe, tell your friends, your enemies, your casual acquaintances about it.
2: Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?